cliffcentral.com. From his silver throne in the glittering palace of Versailles, Louis XIV watched over his kingdom, resplendent in majesty. He taught the world what kings should look like, sound like, how they should walk and eat. Everything was designed, considered, exalted. Louis made himself the center of the French universe and epitomized the very idea of absolute monarchy. Within a hundred years of his death, everything he had done had been ripped apart by the revolution, including his remains, which were exhumed by an enraged French mob. This is the story of the greatest king of France. Louis XIV, Louis le Grand, le Roi Soleil, the King of France between 1638 and 1715. This is the guy who's most well known for absolutism, for founding the old principles of the Ancien Régime, the divine right of kings. He ruled for 72 years and 110 days, which makes him the longest reigning sovereign in European history. And he got to the throne at five years old. The story of Louis is mostly quite pleasant. He did take over at a very young age and had Cardinal Mazarin and his mother Anne of Austria rule for him as regents when he was a little child. But at 23, he took control. And man, did he take control. He centralized the French state. He tried to eliminate feudalism completely. He built palaces like Versailles and retreats like Marly. And they're still there for you to see. And they are awe-inspiring. He managed to survive the Fronde Rebellion when he was a child. And that informed him in a very direct way about his hatred of Paris. He tried to uniformly gather the French Catholic Church as a kind of religion for everybody and revoked the Edict of Nantes, which abolished the rights of Huguenots. He had brilliant people living during his lifetime, and France became the leading European power. He was involved in a number of major wars, and most of the time when he wasn't at war, he was planning the next war. But when Louis died, at an advanced age, he died leaving France in an absolutely incredible position. Didn't last long, though, because the seeds for the revolution had been sown. Anthony Medera is here. We're talking about King Louis XIV. And you know about this guy, right? Yes, I do. And Napoleon said there was only one king, and that was Louis XIV. And for Napoleon to have said that about any king, because he hated the Bourbons. He hated them. Uh, and this is the guy who really gave that surname weight. Exactly. He grew up under the famous King Louis Thirteenth, who we'll probably know from the Three Musketeers. And his mother was Anne of Austria, who was this apparently very beautiful, very vivacious, and quite power-hungry woman. His father, though, died when he was four or five. So he didn't really have a lot of time to get to know his dad. And his dad tried to make a rule that there would be a regency council so he wouldn't just hand power to his wife, the King Louis XIV's mother. Um, she just overturned the will. She was that powerful and made herself mm. head of the council and then hired a bunch of people, mostly from the church because she was very religious, to um, help her run things until he was 23. I think that's when Cardinal Mazarin died. Yes. Uh, so that's when Louis took over. That's right. And, and he learned so much up until that point when people came to the court when he was young, when he was nine or ten years old, impeccable manners, so well brought up. They were so impressed by him. 
already well, at a very, very young age. That is such an interesting thing to bring up at the beginning because that was really the hallmark of his age. He made France the center of manners, of etiquette, of respectability, of art, of culture, of language, of performance. And his whole life was a performance. From the moment he was born until the day he died, he was putting on a show of what he thought kingship should be. And everything he built was there to enhance his kingship and his glory. War was for him just an instrument to enhance his glory. And he lived, ate, breathed, and slept kingship. He was famously quoted, perhaps apocryphally, saying, L'état c'est moi, which means I am the state. And he believed that. And he lived publicly. Oh, everything. Everything when he woke up in the morning, there were people around him. Correct. When he went to sleep at night, there were people around him. When he had sex with his wife, there were people around Correct. him. When his children were born, there were people around him. There was no such thing as privacy. He was the first Kardashian. That's true. Very much so. <laughs> Except I think he had slightly better manners than the Kardashians. But when he was very, very young, the rebellion that you talked about a little bit earlier, he witnessed it. Yeah, the Fronde. They murdered Henry the Fourth and Henry the Third. And the rebellion found him in his bed and they just left it. Well, he was a little child and apparently this mob of Parisians broke into the palace. They found him sleeping. He pretended to be asleep because he never forgot about Mm. this. And then they looked at this child and thought, we can't murder this kid. And they left, but he never forgot. And as a result, he never wanted to live in Paris. He hated it. So him and his mom went out. He gave the Louvre away and turned it into a museum. Mm. That's why it's a museum today because they used to live there. And he said, I don't want to live in this place with this mad Parisian mob. Maybe he foresaw the revolution. Fair enough, because that wasn't long after his reign. And he went and built Versailles, which used to be a hunting lodge for his father. And it was a small, you know, very pretty, but not particularly grand place. And he turned it into this absolute monstrosity. And I mean monstrosity in terms of size, because it was beautiful from end to end. The biggest palace in Europe with gardens that I don't think anyone has ever been able to rival. He had complete command. He wanted to rule over nature and over buildings. He was obsessed with architecture. He was obsessed with plants. He was obsessed with water. He loved fountains. And he would walk through the gardens of Versailles the whole time. And they'd switch on fountains as he walked because they didn't have enough pressure to Mm. make all the fountains go at once. So he always thought everything was working at once. Little did he know that they were actually, as he moved, there were people shouting at each other in the bushes saying, Turn it on now! Here comes the king! (laughs) And then they'd turn it on and he'd move past and they'd switch it off and go to the next one. But you know that everybody wanted to be like him. So even the jolly monarch, Charles II, Mm, and Catherine the Great. Mm -hmm. I mean, they wanted to make their courts like Versailles. Well, Ludwig Ludwig of Bavaria was so obsessed with King Louis XIV that he built... Palaces all over Neuschwanstein Castle. Mm. He built Herrn Himsche, which he also built in replication, really, of a small version of Versailles. But that place was just absolutely astonishing that anyone could pull off something of that magnitude. Those rooms, which are painted by Lebrun and have gilt everything, marble floors, fireplaces, the Hall of Mirrors, You know, mirrors were really hard to make in those days Mm. and really expensive. And no expense was spared. He wanted Versailles to be the jewel. 
But you know that something interesting in terms of what we do, we make shutters, and that people talk about this being the start of where shutters have come from, because he had shutters in Versailles. Yeah, and he you can still to, see them even in the Hall of Mirrors. And he would open the shutter and peek through there because there was lots of beautiful women that used to bathe in the little that you <laughs> were talking bazaar, about. Yeah, <laughs> and they used to bathe in that. But he says that he was more concerned of the guards, not concentrate on guarding, but looking at the women. Uh, yeah. So he would peek on them and bust them. But also many of the fortresses that he built around northern France and northern and eastern France were still used in the Second World War. Yeah. So it shows you what he wow. did. And also the other thing from Louis, and, you know, let's be frank, he wanted to take over the world. Like, mm. you know, he was definitely one of those. Well, he did take over Spain effectively. He put his own family in control of Spain. Yeah. And he eclipsed the Holy Roman Empire from the point of view of being the most powerful empire in Europe and made Correct. it France. And, yeah. and it stayed that way almost until the end of Napoleon's time. And he did the same culturally by displacing Italy. Yeah, that's true. You know, Italy was always seen as the place where manners and good taste originated. Mm. And from then on, it became France. It also became the language French of diplomacy, which he was very good at using to his own ends. And he kind of controlled Europe the way Queen Victoria controlled it later on in the late 1900s by marrying various members of his family mm. off to various other royal houses. So there was always two ways of getting acquisitions. Like the Habsburg grew the empire by marrying and he loved war. I he mean, loved he, war. He, he would go to war often. He understood what needed to be done. He wasn't suicidal. So if we look at what he did with England, he wanted to get them in a partnership to go up against Netherlands and to mm. take out the eastern part of Europe, northeastern part. And he knew what Charles II loved, and it was money and women. So he invited him. Charles came along. He even got his wife to go with an entourage, caravan full of beautiful French women, and a bucket full of money. Charles was in, and Charles joined him in a partnership. He was uh, very fond of women himself. I mean, he married Maria Theresia of Austria. His own mother was Austrian, too. So he ended up marrying a relative, and they did have children. Unfortunately for Louis, he didn't see his son succeed. His son died before he did, and his grandson died before he did. So he eventually saw his great-grandson accede to the throne after he died. And that was Louis Fifteenth, Correct. Ultimately. But he did like women, and his wife, Maria Theresia, died in 1683. And he was very complimentary about her, though, in a way that wouldn't confer too much emotional kindness. He said... She never caused me a moment of unease, except when she died, which is a, a compliment of a kind. Yeah, I was way with words. <laughs> um, he also married Madame de Maintenon, who was originally a mistress, and he very secretly married her. No one ever spoke of it, but it was kind of an accepted thing around court that she was his wife. And he had affairs the whole time, uh, especially during his marriage to Maria Theresa with Le Valier and, and many other women. But he they became like quite them. powerful. He would create a tax for his mistress. He'd say, okay, um, I've got a new mistress. She wants something, so I'll make a salt tax. And she'd get like 2% on every kilogram of salt sold. Louis loved a bit of flattery. If you said anything nice about him, I mean, you commented on a portrait, a very famous portrait of him by Hyacinthe Rigaud, where he's standing in his robes of state with a fleur de lis all over it. He's got his sword, which they still got in the, in the museum at the Louvre. The Sword of Charlemagne is what they call it. And he's wearing his periwig, and he's got a, a frilly collar and the collar of the Order of Saint-Louis around his neck. His legs are in white stockings, high heel shoes with a big red bow in the front. 
And I think that fashion wouldn't be a miss in Paris today. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably where haute couture comes from. Exactly. He was very proud of his legs. He wore the heels to accentuate his brilliant calves, which he needed to show off. <laughs> and the reason he had such good legs was not just genetics. He also used to go on his promenade every single day through the the gardens of Versailles. And when he became too old to walk, and he would insist that everybody kept up with him. In other words, he'd be walking and you had to walk at the same pace as him. And that was where he did most of his business. Okay. So while he was walking, you could put petitions to him and explain some political situation and he'd either help you or ignore you. And he had little gardens that he would disappear into. So you'd go into one of the bosques and then he would say, oh, no, I'm bored with you. And he would just disappear down a little hidden path and into a maze and you'd never find him again for the rest of the day. But if he wasn't able to walk, eventually they used to push him around in a big pram. We get table manners from him. We get bowing. We get all the various etiquette positions and postures and and these tiny little bits of human behavior, which we regard now as being universal. But most of them come from Louis. He was obsessed with that stuff. He would take his hat off for every woman, whether she was a poor peasant woman or a duchess. But he would take it extra high for a duchess and extra low for the peasant woman. So if Louis did something, even the smallest thing, if he nodded at you, for example, you were like the most important person in the aristocracy. It's the way he tamed them. Because if they weren't at court paying attention to him, they were causing trouble somewhere, fermenting a rebellion. Mm. And he never wanted to go back to the front. So he took them out of Paris and out of their own sinecures and put them in Versailles and they would live in these terrible little dank apartments but to be at Versailles was grander than to be in your own castle your own chateau somewhere when he saw his minister Fouquet's chateau called Vaux Vicomte which is still one of the most beautiful houses in France he was horrified that this guy had built himself this amazing palace and had obviously spent more money than Louis had before hmm. he built Versailles and he had him arrested. Yeah, that's <laughs> correct. Exiled. One of the musketeers. D'Artagnan. How do you pronounce D'Artagnan. it? D'Artagnan. Okay, that sounds a lot better than what I said. <laughs> he, one of the heroes of the musketeers, he, he actually arrested him. Yeah. And then when they put him in jail, this individually talking about um, his servant, he was only allowed one servant, and this servant came in with an iron mask. And that's a basis for the story. Oh, wow, that Alexandre Dumas actually did. And inspired numerous films and novels about this particular incident you're talking about. Amazing. But, you know, if you look at the end, France had one of the worst, in this particular year, had one of the worst winters in living memory. And then they suffered from major famine. And so he had to go and get grain. The mighty Louis had to go and get grain and (laughs) beg for food for France. So there were also very, very tough times near the end of his of his reign. Amazing. But if you look at today, Macron sees him as a role model. Charles yeah. de Gaulle saw him as a role model. Yeah. I mean, those people who lived during his reign, Colbert, Molière, Racine, Lebrun, Laveau, these are famous architects, artists, musicians like Charpentier, uh, Turenne, Boulle, who invented that style of furniture, Vauban. These are some of the most brilliant and talented Frenchman that ever lived. And it's sort of, in some respect, the golden age. If there was a golden age for France, it was during the reign of Louis XIV. I agree. Well, he died in his mid-70s, which for those days was quite incredible. But he had huge health problems. I mean, he had diabetes, Mm. and in the end, he got quite fat. He had lots of dental abscesses, gout. He had a horrible operation on an anal fistula, which took hours. 
And he apparently, because they didn't have anesthetics in those days, he apparently didn't even change his breathing during the operation Mm. because being the king meant you didn't show weakness. So while they were operating on his asshole, he remained calm and totally subdued and didn't give an indication that he was in any pain. But they made a mold for his ass <laughs> because they thought that's how they could keep it open. What? And yes, that's a true story. They made a mold, and in the end, they gave him quinine. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. So, and that's what solved his troubles. And, and then he got gangrene. That's what killed him. Yeah, he, he got a, a gangrene infection in his leg, and it started to smell quite mm. bad. And for a couple of weeks, he was just lying in this dark room in the Palace of Versailles with people coming in and out the whole time because he would never be left alone. Yeah. And uh, he had this this ugly, suppurating sore on his leg that just got worse and worse and worse, and eventually that just poisoned his system and killed him. But um, his wife, I put in inverted commas because it was a secret, but she was by his side, and she said, well, I need to now call in the last rites, mm. she believed. And he said, why so soon? <laughs> yeah, he said, I've got plenty of time. <laughs> yes, I've got plenty of time left. No, it was it was an incredible end to a very, very long reign. And as you say, somewhat sad, because if he died at the height of his power, maybe we would have even greater respect for him now. You know, like the, the Caesars and mm. the Alexanders of the ancient world. I can draw parallels with Edward III very much with Louis. They were incredible. They had massive energy. Mm. They both wanted to grow the empire. The challenge, though, which is quite unnatural at the time, was they lived too long. And they outlived their, their heirs. Yeah. And that's the sad thing is Louis did so much. But because it was such a long reign, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of that was undone by the time he passed away. He was buried in the Cathedral of Saint-Denis. That was the traditional burial place of the kings of France. And, of course, for 80 years he was undisturbed, and then the revolution came along, and they actually dug up everybody in the cathedral, threw them into a great big pit, and they've mixed up the bones. They did try to find everyone's remains a couple of hundred years later. And they think they found the skull of Louis Fourteenth. But basically all those French kings are in what they call an ossuary. So between two walls in the basement of Saint-Denis, they've put all the bones. Men, women, they're not even sure if all of them were kings and queens. Everybody who'd been thrown into this pit. And they're all there in this ossuary now. So he's got a grave that he shares with... Probably about 300 other people. It's not very dignified for a man who was so dignified. You know, he was loved and hated. And during his funeral procession um, in 1715, there were people that were cheering. And then there were the mourners. But if I look at the history of France and the way they ruled, he has no peers. No, certainly what he did for France positioned them as the greatest nation in Europe. Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. The full series is available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, Ava Perron. I think I'm going to cry, said the king as death approached. Is there anyone else in the room? Not that it matters. No one would be surprised if I cried with you. Those are his last words to Madame de Maintenon.